0: Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. On Wednesday, Vladimir Putin announced the partial mobilisation of his country's population after Russia suffered setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine. Almost immediately, many young Russian men started panic buying tickets out of their home country. Like this Russian man, who arrived at Istanbul airport on Thursday.
1: Part of the mobilisation is uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why I'm here. I feel that not really many lots of Russians people want to... Uh, To fight and want to be mobilized and want to go to them.
0: But back in Russia, the call up has already begun. Videos on social media show men saying goodbye to their families and boarding buses. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Hapolloch. Today, will Putin's mobilization change the course of the war? Journalist Dan McLaughlin has been reporting on the war in Ukraine for the Irish Times over the past seven months. Dan, you're currently in the southeastern city of Zaporizhia. I spoke to you just last Tuesday after Ukraine had made some major territorial gains, but a lot has happened since then. So let's start at the beginning. We talked last week about the potential that war crimes could be uncovered in the liberated areas. And then pretty much straight away, unfortunately, news came out about the discovery of a mass grave outside the city of Izium. You have now travelled to Izium in the past week and you spoke to people there. What did you find? What are the conditions like in this city, which was under Russian occupation for more than five months?
1: Yeah, Izium was uh, taken over by the Russians in early March after extremely heavy fighting. Um, over a couple of weeks, maybe a little bit longer, which did a lot of damage to the city. After that, people lived in extreme isolation. Um, no power supplies, no heat, no light, no water flowing through the pipes, um, no internet connection, no telephone connection. So they didn't know what was going on in the rest of Ukraine, never mind the rest of the world. They were getting all their information from Russian propaganda and Russian sources. So they really didn't know what was going on until the last couple of weeks or so when the ukrainian forces came back and services started to be restored in terms of the the grave that you mentioned on the edge of the city in a pine forest ukrainians have found something like 445 graves they think and they're investigating now they're exhuming the bodies from those graves and they're sending them away for analysis to find out how those people died speaking to local people they said um some of them died of natural causes obviously conditions, ordinary illnesses and, and 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 things were massively exacerbated by the horrible conditions that people were living through. The hospital was functioning, but barely. People couldn't get the medicines they needed. So for chronic conditions, people couldn't get treatment that they needed. They didn't couldn't get things like insulin that they needed. They couldn't get heart medicine. They couldn't get cancer medicine that they needed. So a lot of people died that way. Um, a lot of people died in the fighting. They died from bombing, shelling. And when the fighting was taking place for the city, And then we've also heard reports of torture from Ukrainian officials. They said some of the bodies are found with signs of torture, with knife wounds, tied hands, at least one of them, Ukrainian officials say, was found with a rope around the neck as well as bullet wounds, explosive wounds and so on. So it will take a while for all that analysis to be done. But Ukraine certainly says that this is more a sign of atrocities committed under Russian occupation, the kind of thing that we saw before from towns like Bucha and Irpin outside of Kiev when they were taken briefly by Russian forces early in the war.
0: So, Dan, the Ukrainian offensive, which picked up so much earlier this month, has now slowed down. Fighting is still going on, but there isn't the same sort of forward momentum for Ukrainians as there had been. What is the latest news from the front line?
1: Well, Ukrainians are consolidating their positions in Kharkiv. They've taken all of Kharkiv region or almost all of Kharkiv region back. We've been told in the last couple of days, including in Kharkiv, that there is still some fighting and shelling going on in areas close to the Russian border and close to areas that the Russians still control of Ukraine. So that means the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. But certainly the Ukrainians were very optimistic that they could continue to push into those Donetsk and Lugansk regions using the momentum that they gained in Kharkiv. Um, and they, they considered that to be one of the reasons why Putin's declared this mobilization that you mentioned at the top of the show. Also down in Kherson region, we're still seeing heavy fighting. Ukrainians are still confident that given the weapons and given time, they can take these regions back. But at the moment, as you say, the pace has certainly slowed. And it's a a time of consolidation, really, and waiting to see where the next forward movement from the Ukrainian side occurs, if indeed it does occur in the near future.
0: So on Wednesday morning of this week, after 24 hours of speculation that it was going to happen, a pre-recorded address by Vladimir Putin was televised in which he announced a partial mobilisation. Reserve troops can be called up and sent to Ukraine, up to 300,000 of them. Now, this has been the subject of much discussion ever since. What it says about how Russia is doing in the war, how much difference it will make in the course of the war and, and so on. Firstly, Dan, how was this news received in Ukraine? Is there any sense that Ukrainians feel intimidated by this?
1: Um, there's no sense of that, I don't think. Certainly the official message that you're getting from Ukrainian leaders is that this is a sign of weakness from Russia's side. It's proof that this isn't going according to plan. The theory from the Russian side seemed to be at the start of the war that Ukraine would fold very quickly, that this would be over in a matter of days, if not weeks. Clearly that hasn't happened. Putin also said earlier in the war, that there would be no mobilization. Even last week, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that mobilization of any sort was not being considered and discussed at the moment. So in kind of a message that's being echoed by Western leaders as well, this could well be a sign of weakness and a sign that things aren't going according to plan in Russia. Certainly on the Ukrainian side, morale is high from everything that I can see. Because of that Kharkiv counteroffensive that you mentioned Because of signs that partisan groups are working effectively in occupied territory, including in Zaporizhia region, where I am now, including in Kherson region, where Russian appointed officials and also local collaborators are increasingly the subject of assassination attempts and bomb attacks. So, no, I don't think this intimidates Ukraine at all. One thing that I should mention, I think, generally is that morale generally seems to be very, very high among the Ukrainian troops. And that's partly, I think, because it feels like a consolidated effort on Ukrainian society's part to defend the country as best they can, using everything that they can do. And people feel, I think, generally inspired by that. They feel motivated by that. And they also think that this is an advantage they have over the Russian side. They don't believe Russian soldiers are as motivated as they are. They don't believe they can be. They think, you know, why does a soldier coming from thousands of kilometers away in the Russian Far East or Far North or Siberia or the Caucasus, what are they really here fighting for? Do they really believe Putin's propaganda or are they just coming for a wage? Generally, they think they're just coming for money and that they are liable to to fold much more quickly, and they're certainly not going to, to fight as hard as Ukrainians will fight for their own land. There's also the question, and, and Ukrainians ask this as well, how will Putin really organize this? It's obviously a massive logistical undertaking. How do you get 300,000 people if that's what Putin wants? How do you get them to the front line? How do you tr- give them enough tr- decent amount of training? How do you get them all equipped and so on? You know, these these reserves aren't going to suddenly appear on the front line tomorrow. I think it will be very interesting and potentially very challenging for for the center, for the Kremlin and also for regional governors and regional authorities to get these numbers delivered to the Russian military without seeing kind of significant opposition or, as you mentioned there, things like thousands of people making for the border to try and get to Georgia, to try and get to Armenia, to try and get to Finland, to try and get out of Russia any way they can and make sure that they don't end up serving."
0: In his address, Putin also announced referendums on joining Russia would take place in regions of Ukraine. And he said that Russia would use any means to defend its territory, which has been widely taken as a reference to nuclear weapons.
1: Our country also possesses various weapons of mass destruction, some components that are even more modern than the ones NATO countries possess. And in response to the threat to the territorial integrity of our country to protect Russia and our people, we will undoubtedly use all means in our disposal. This is not a bluff.
0: How seriously are Ukrainians taking the threat of of nuclear weapons right now?
1: Again, I think Ukrainians have thought from the start that Putin's really capable of almost anything. I don't think the recent announcements of this week really changed their view on that. They felt like this is a war for um, what Putin wants to be, the total destruction or total subjugation of Ukraine. And they think that backed into a corner, he could do anything. I mean, they haven't really... Uh, had any doubts that he could potentially use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or something like that? They don't really put anything past him. As you mentioned there, the this idea of annexing more territories—I mean, this was something that I think in the sort of Kremlin's convoluted justification for this would lead to them claiming they could use nuclear weapons to defend it. I mean, their argument is: we go into Ukraine, we take over certain regions, we claim that they're part of Russia. And then we say that if you dare to try and take them back, we can use all weapons at our disposal to stop you doing that. That is also something that Dmitry Medvedev has also confirmed. Um, You know, he's former prime minister, former president, and now an extremely hawkish figure. And he said that that is exactly what this does entail. When Russia declares that these regions in Ukraine are part of Russia, Russia can use, according to its own defense doctrine, nuclear weapons to defend them. So again... Ukrainians are hoping that the West can somehow prevent Putin from taking any step like this or people in Putin's circle can stop him doing it. But in terms of Putin and the most hawkish figures in in Russia, they, they think they're basically capable of anything to get what they want. And also, if this war does go against them, if they feel backed into a corner, using it to basically save their own skins if it comes to that.
0: After Putin's announcement on Wednesday night, protesters across Russia took to the streets marching against the war, but also the mobilisation.
1: Well, I mean, as you can see here, pretty dramatic scenes. And bear in mind, we haven't seen protests in cities for the last five or six months. People have been so scared of the fact that they will be detained. And that is clearly what is happening. But this mobilisation announcement...
0: These protests seemed, based on Western news reports, to be slightly more forceful than previous anti-war protests in Russia earlier this year. And it must have taken a lot of bravery on the part of those who participated because of the repercussions. Over 1,300 people have been arrested, according to OVD Info, a protest monitoring group. Dan, as someone who has spent a lot of time reporting from Russia in the past, how significant do you think these protests are?
1: I think it's too early to tell. I mean, we have seen in the past. You know, if we just think about recent years, we saw some anti-war protests. We saw protests against the jailing of um, opposition leader Alexei Navalny at the start of this year. He, when he was poisoned last year. You know, we've seen different protests at different times, and even though they've been quite large at times, they've proved to be unsustainable in the face of very harsh crackdowns in the, when you consider the fact that, you know, most Russian opposition leaders and key activists have either been jailed like Navalny, or they've gone abroad simply to protect themselves and stop themselves being jailed or attacked. So, you know, it's hard at the moment to see how a major anti-war movement on the liberal side of Russian society could be sustained. It might not have the numbers, it might not have the leadership and the coordination, I think a crucial thing that we have to see is how broader Russian society reacts to this mobilization. It's always been, I think, the main concern of Russia that kind of ordinary Russians who aren't necessarily very politically engaged, become infuriated by something that Putin does, whether it's... A stagnant economy or whether it's something like mobilization, which brings people out onto the street, people who wouldn't normally protest against Putin. So we need to look around the regions and see, you know, if if there is significant resistance to people being taken away to fight in Ukraine from, you know, ordinary workers, you know, not from students, not from liberals, from workers, from people who would usually just keep their heads down and get on with it. If they don't want their kids to be sent to war, if they themselves don't want to be sent to war, then that could become a much bigger challenge for the center in Moscow and for um, regional governors to deal with. There's another perennial problem in Russia as well. Poor people end up being sent to war while the elite gets out of it. Not just the elite, anyone who can pay enough in bribe money manages to keep their son out of the armed forces. If we see that kind of thing, if we see again poorer regions, poorer people being sent off to war, eventually maybe their patience could crack, and they may eventually come out against Putin. That's something we haven't seen during his whole twenty-two years in power. First Last week,
0: a video began circulating on social media. It shows the Russian oligarch, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's a friend of Putin and controls Wagner, a mercenary group that is fighting in Ukraine for Russia. In the video, Prygoshin is in a prison yard and he's addressing hundreds of prisoners, explaining to them that if they join the mercenary group he controls and go to fight in Ukraine, they will receive pardons. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, in that video, Progozian told the prisoners that if they go to Ukraine and refuse to fight, they'll be executed on the spot. It's it's really medieval stuff. And when you see this happening, you think it's no wonder that war crimes are being committed in Russian-controlled areas. It seems desperate, but also incredibly dangerous. What do you think?
1: It does. And it's it's an extremely... Sinister development. Um, and we just don't know really who is fighting and who's leading things on the Russian side in certain sectors. It seems like the Wagner group, for example, and we don't know, and these are mercenaries. Um, not directly it seems under the control of uh, of Russian military officers, although very closely connected to the Russian military and being supplied by the russian military we don 't know what kind of command and control they have there we don 't know kind of what we don 't know what orders they 're being given we don 't know really who they 're responsible to and we, If these prisoners, a lot of them who are have been convicted of the most serious crimes, if they 're being drafted to the front, who are they going to fight for? Are they going to follow orders? who are they going to be responsible to? Um, So, you know, when we are hearing allegations of more war crimes against Russian troops, it certainly doesn't look like, I don't know, the the moral calibre, let's say, of the Russian troops is going to be improved at all by convicts being sent to the front line. That's for sure.
0: Who is this man, Purgoshin, and how important is he to Putin's war effort?
1: Yeah, Prigozhin's an interesting character who's getting a higher and higher profile now. He, I think he's kind of started off as a businessman. He ran a catering company. He has this nickname Putin's chef. Hmm. That comes from the fact that he he ran a big catering company which got uh big contracts from the Russian armed forces to provide catering services to them. But, you know, he's broadened out his influence and his interests in a big way. One thing he was famous for before Wagner was being involved in the financing of a a so-called troll factory outside Petersburg, where Russia would generate all kinds of pro-Putin material and comments for social media networks and basically try to 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 flood the airwaves or the social media sites with pro-Putin messages. Subsequently, he became well known for being behind Wagner. This is the best known of uh, Russia's mercenary groups involved in fighting in Ukraine, Syria and places in Africa. And as you say, he's now popping up on social media, flying around Russian prisons, gathering uh, prisoners in the prison yard and giving them these pep talks and saying, basically, we can get you out of jail if you go and fight in Ukraine. That's what Prigozhin's doing now. As I mentioned, he is getting a much higher profile, you know, because we don't see Putin going and meeting troops. We don't see Putin giving pep talks directly to soldiers. And people like Prigozhin are increasingly kind of filling that gap. He appeals to nationalists who are all in favor of the war. There's a, there's a very kind of hawkish element in Russian society, which now looks to people like Prigozhin, to call the shots and to, and to get people to the front line. So we'll see. I mean, at the moment, he is seen as a Putin ally. If Putin becomes a kind of weaker or sideline figure in the future, it's certainly possible that someone like Prigozhin, who looks very ambitious, could potentially take up a bigger political role. Ukraine and
0: Russia have carried out a prisoner swap with Russia. On Thursday night, it emerged that hundreds of Ukrainian prisoners of war had been released by Russia in exchange for Russian prisoners of war. The Ukrainians included many who had fought at the Azov-style steel factory in Mariupol, where a few hundred soldiers withstood Russian bombardment for months before surrendering. That episode of the war was an important piece of propaganda for the Ukrainian side, showing how determined they were to resist Russia. And when the soldiers were captured, many Russians urged that they be executed. So is it a surprise to see them released?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very big surprise. I don't think anyone on either side, at least who wasn't very close to the negotiations, saw this coming. It's a surprise because, uh, as you mentioned there, the, 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 the Azov-style defenders, Azov-style was the huge steelworks in Mariupol, which was the last fortress, really, that um, Ukrainian troops defended in the city. And they defended it through a siege of something like 10 weeks or so by Russian troops. And it was seen as being an, an incredibly heroic act an act of real self-sacrifice by the Ukrainian people. That's how they saw the defenders of Mariupol. And when they eventually surrendered, it was a very difficult moment for Ukrainian society. And there was a huge call for the Ukrainian, for Ukrainian leadership to do as much as they possibly could to get these people back, to save their lives and to get them back to Ukraine in any way possible. From the Russian side, Russian media and Russian politicians absolutely demonized the defenders of Azov style. Senior Russian politicians have have said repeatedly that these members, the leaders of the Azov regiment, would be put on trial, that they would be tried for war crimes, they would be tried for the terrible things that they had supposedly done against Russian-speaking civilians in eastern Ukraine. Now, to see them released is extraordinary. And again, the, the nationalist figures, the hawkish figures that we talked about in Russia before, those voices on social media in particular, were absolutely appalled by this they were saying, how can we release these people? We claimed that these people had to be put on trial. There had to be a, some, kind of, some kind of tribunal to expose the crimes that they supposedly committed. And suddenly they've been released. Those people are asking how this was allowed to happen, particularly because it seems that they were exchanged largely to win the release of probably Vladimir Putin's closest friend in Ukraine. He's a man called Viktor Medvedchuk, an oligarch, a multimillionaire maybe even a billionaire and the leader of the main pro-russian party in Ukraine. He was arrested at the start of the war trying to escape the country. He was held in in a Ukrainian jail and him and I think around 50 russian prisoners have been exchanged for more than 200 prisoners. So there is lots of dissatisfaction on the russian side about this. But again it's a huge boost for Ukrainian morale. I mean all over Ukrainian social media this morning there was absolute joy that these people, these heroes, as Ukrainians see them, are coming home. And basically, Ukraine just had to exchange them for one completely discredited Russian oligarch and close friend of Vladimir Putin. They're bringing home heroes and they're expelling a traitor.
0: A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the UN General Assembly via video link. Zelensky was extremely defiant and sounded up for the fight. But given all these factors we've discussed, the situation at the front line, the mobilisation, the threat of nuclear weapons and the approach of winter, where do you see this war going in the weeks and months
1: ahead? I think the most likely prospect is more stalemate you know, kind of settling into the kind of frontline areas that we have now, the frontline basically becoming sort of bedded down in its current position. That's probably because, you know, Putin will manage to concentrate his forces along that line. As these reserves come through, he should be able to uh, bolster the troops that he has already, already has on the frontline and make it tougher for Ukraine to move forward. But having said that, we didn't really see the collapse of. Russian defences in Kharkiv coming. So could there be potential areas of weakness that the Ukrainians could exploit? Could we see another sort of collapse in morale among Russian troops in, in areas where they are under heavy pressure, for example, in Kherson region, in parts of Lugansk, in parts of Donetsk? I mean, as well as, as as Ukraine feeling that it has an advantage in morale and its willingness to fight, it also feels like it's able to move much more quickly react much more quickly to developments on the battlefield. Its commanders are now operating according to kind of a a NATO model of command and control, which gives officers on the battlefield much more responsibility and much more leeway to fight in the way they see it, to exploit opportunities as they see it on the battlefield. And they see Russia still kind of operating in a slow, rather cumbersome way, in a more Soviet way. And this feeling of optimism that I think has gone through Ukraine and gone through the Ukrainian troops in the last months or so with the Kharkiv counterattack, whether they can, they can develop that and make something happen in Lugansk, Donetsk, Kherson.
0: Dan, before we finish up, what are you planning to do while you're in Zaporizhia, in the southeast of the country?
1: Well, one of the reasons, reasons this is an interesting place to be is that it's, um, uh, Zaporizhia region is one of the areas where Russia hopes to hold one of these, these referendums on joining Russia um, in the next four or five days, Zaporizhia region, Herson, Donetsk and Lugansk, four regions that are partly occupied by Russia at the moment. But the regional capital where I am now is actually still controlled by Ukraine. Um, so I'm talking to people here about what they feel about uh, these potential referendums. I'm talking to people who've crossed the front line and have come from occupied territory to government controlled territory to seek safety. Um and so I'll be following that in the days ahead, um, and also, of course, continuing to follow what's going on in Kharkiv, where I've just been. Whether Ukraine can continue to consolidate its its uh, gains there, um, what we see from the investigation into alleged war crimes in the Kharkiv region, and also seeing how um, the developments come from Russia, how the mobilization works, and um, yeah, and that's that's going to be the main focus for the next week, ten days, two weeks to come.
0: That's all for today. My thanks to Dan McLaughlin for joining us on the podcast from Ukraine. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be
1: back on Monday.